Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Go big or go small. I know the expression is go big or go home, and you usually hear it in relation to sports. Give an all-out effort or don't even try. If you're going to go for snowboarding gold, why settle for a backside 1260 off the heels when you can go for an 1800 quadruple cork? I don't know what those mean, but they're real things. Going big may sometimes be the only way to go for gold in sports, but it's not the only way to consider Scripture. There are passages in the Bible that anchor some of the great theological doctrines of the church, but also speak to normal and everyday issues of our lives. Our passage today is one of those. As you listen to it read, keep in mind that the tax collectors, as they are called in this passage, are seen as Roman collaborators who lined their pockets at the expense of their own people. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him, Jesus, in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. So let's start. Let's go big with this passage. And here it's affirmation of salvation by grace, not by works. Jesus is damning with praise the Pharisees and scribes who assume that they have no need of a moral physician. They assume that the tax collectors don't deserve what they themselves don't need, God's grace. They don't leave room for grace, you see. They don't deserve grace. We don't need grace, so no room for grace. Now, one might be fooled into thinking that these Pharisees and scribes have high self-esteem, but that would be a mistake. Having a high opinion of oneself is not the same as having high self-esteem, not healthy self-esteem anyway. Self-elevation is not the same as self-affirmation or self-acceptance. Now, Jesus doesn't point out the hypocrisy of the self-righteous. He doesn't point out the logs in the eyes of those obsessing over the splinters in others' eyes. He doesn't urge the virtues of humility and empathy. 
He pretends they are right, that they are special, that they have no need for the grace that he is showing these tax collectors. Jesus is being strategic here. He is giving his energy to those with ears to hear grace and not those who refuse to hear it because, again, they don't deserve what we don't need. In going big, I would also say that our passage speaks to a doctrine of humanity. For room to be made for grace in our lives, we need to be honest about what it means to be human, what is possible, what is not. It is okay to accept the unalterable fact that we're going to get things wrong. It's okay to make mistakes and need help. And while it is not okay to do what good, decent, and moral people should not do, it is at least okay to recognize the fact that we still do them and that we need grace. It's okay to embrace being what we are, limited and flawed human beings. And now having gone big with my doctrines of salvation and humanity, I want to go small. This is preschool Sunday, and I want us to consider what wisdom our passage might have for how children can develop a healthy self-esteem. Ironically, some of the strategies of the self-esteem culture we find ourselves in may not be as helpful as we thought. The self-esteem culture that is reflected on letting children win giving participation trophies, telling the child that she can be anything in the world she wants to be, has its heart in the right place. Its fascination with superpowers is meant to promote recognizing one's own unique gifts, and it rightly recognizes how disastrous and dangerous can be a shame-based culture that punishes mistakes that uses fear to motivate accomplishment, uses shame as a means of managing a child's behavior. And there is something communicated about unconditional love and grace when a child shines in the eyes of a parent or grandparent, teacher or coach. For instance, this past Friday, my granddaughter, Emery, picked out a book for me to read to her before her nap. It's a book that I love to read to her. It's a book she loves to have us read to her. And after I finished the book and she got in bed, she stopped me before I could walk out the door. Papa, don't take the book with you. I have to, honey. I need it. No, I want you to leave my book in my room. Sweetheart, you don't understand. I need this book for my sermon. I promise I'll bring it back. And I don't know what her problem was. She still argued with me. I mean, what what part of I need your book for my sermon does a five-year-old not understand? (laughs) Eleanor gets it. Camden's going to get it. (laughs) You see, the book that I read to her, and by the way, I took the book with me. She is adorable, but I needed the book. Uh, (laughs) The book that I read to her is Next to You, a book of adorableness. And the sermon I was working on is the sermon that you were hearing right now. Now, this book could be an example of self-esteem parenting that overinflates the child, or it could be an example of godly grace that sees a child as she is and still thinks that she's adorable. I'll describe the book and you decide. Next to you, the book says, the softest puppy in the world is only kind of cute. Two kittens and a ball of yarn? 
a line of fuzzy yellow ducklings, a squirrel eating a donut with tiny hands. Adorable? Sure. But next to you? Meh. Just okay. And the book goes on describing all kinds of other adorable animals, none of which to compare to how adorable is the child. I'll describe its approach playing off of Romans 8, which asks if anything can separate us from the love of God. Shall anything compare to how adorable is the granddaughter? Shall a baby chick or piglet in a sweater or a monkey sucking her thumb? Shall an elephant calf taking a bath or a fawn trying to stand for the first time? No, there is no animal in all of creation as adorable as the grandchild in the grandfather's eyes. So, is this book an example of a self-esteem culture gone too far, or an example of unconditional love for children as they are? Uh, never mind, I'm not going to let you decide. I can't have anyone spoiling a book that Emory and I love. I'm dismissing you as the jury, and I'm passing sentence as the judge. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that book, and my granddaughter is more adorable than all those adorable animals. But I will say this, that can be true only if I understand and Emery understands that that is the logic of love. Emery needs to understand that while I think that she is adorable, neither one of us needs to be under the delusion that she is not going to make mistakes from which she will need to learn and she is not going to do things wrong for which guilt and wanting to do better are healthy results. Also, she needs to understand that while she is super special in her mother's eyes and her grandparents' eyes, everyone is loved just as much by God who sees us all as we are with all of our mistakes and flaws. That is acceptance by grace. That is healthy self-acceptance that leads to seeing that it's okay to make mistakes. That's how we learn. And it's okay to admit that you have done something wrong that's a part of how forgiveness works. Where the self-esteem culture sometimes goes wrong is when it promotes self-esteem, which really is self-elevation. When the child cannot live up to what the glorified image is of her, the glorified image with others cast upon him, she can lie to herself saying that it's always someone else's fault. Or he can feel ashamed for not being who everyone says that he is. I'll illustrate with a story of Lizzie who needed counseling. The story comes out of David Zoll's book, Low Anthropology. The therapist is Lori Gautry. Lizzie is in therapy not because she has difficult to please parents who are always tearing her down, that shame culture, but parents who are always building her up. She had a hard time getting past this conviction that she was a failure to herself and to her parents, even though that was the last thing that her parents wanted her to believe. She told Gautry that she used to tell her parents that she was bad at math. No, honey, you're not bad at math. I am bad at math. Look at my grades. Oh, that doesn't mean you're bad at math. You're as good at math as any child in that school. Got to know that. You just have a different learning style, that's all. 
the parents were not listening to Lizzie. That's not saying they were all wrong. Maybe Lizzie had it in her. She probably did. Maybe Lizzie did have a different learning style and if taught differently would become good at math. Though in the self-esteem culture, parents can sometimes be too quick to blame the teacher in making excuses for the child. But they were not hearing their daughter. She didn't need a pep talk. She didn't need cheering up. She needed them to hear that she was not good at math, that she needed help, maybe tutoring. Who knows, maybe she needed to take the class all over again so she isn't forced to go to the next level without having gotten this level right. Because they were disagreeing with what she knew inside herself to be true, that as things stood, she was bad at math. She was made to feel that there was something wrong with recognizing that she needed help. Compare that story to the one of the mother who years ago was in tears when being told that her son needed to repeat kindergarten. To that mother's credit, she got past her own embarrassment at not having a good student and held him back. And she later wrote the teacher, my wife, by the way, that it was the best thing that could have ever happened to her son, that her son was flourishing now in school and was very happy. Lizzie's parents tried to love their child unconditionally. That's good, but it came across as loving her unrealistically. They were trying to promote confidence, but they ended up metabolizing disappointment. How odd that an unexpected consequence of promoting self-esteem can bring about the very thing that the promoter wants to avoid, shaming the child. Saul says, when a person isn't permitted to tell the truth about who they are or lacks the vocabulary to articulate their limits, they're set up for a different kind of shame. Less toxic, perhaps, but no walk in the park. This is the shame of not living up to what other people have told us that we are. Again, I am warning against promoting self-inflation, not Warning against promoting self-esteem. Self-esteem is a good thing to promote. Let's all agree. But I'm suggesting that the way to authentic self-esteem begins with authentic self-acceptance. And the first thing we have to accept is that we're human. We're limited. We're going to mess up. We want to get it right but we are going to make mistakes. We want to be right, to be good and decent human beings, but we are going to do what is wrong. The church gets all this wrong when it is so obsessed with convincing us that we're sinners that it promotes its own culture of shame. But the church gets it right when it talks about us being limited and flawed human beings who need to live by grace that we're welcome at the table with Jesus because Jesus offers us what we can't earn and what we can't lose, God's unconditional love. What I hope for children at home and children in the preschool is that they be seen and that they be loved for who they are. I hope they learn that it's okay to be who they are. Human beings are going to get things wrong. To see that and to admit it is how we learn. 
that they're going to do things that are wrong. And that's why we need to live by grace. And now we need to work each other to be better. I hope they're under, they'll understand that everybody needs help. And I hope they understand that they are special. Not because they are better than the other kids around them, even the ones who are struggling at the time, but simply because they are loved by their family, by their friends, by their church, hopefully by their teachers, and always by their God. What I hope for them is that they'll know grace, which helps them gain an honest and thus healthy self-acceptance, and true self-esteem. We all of us need that grace. We all need to know that it's okay to be human. If you want a reaffirmation or celebration of that, I commend to you the famous performance by Jane Marzuski, who goes by the stage name Nightbird on America's Got Talent. You can Google it. And some of you have seen it because I posted about it on Facebook. Believe me, it's an unusual thing when I post a clip from America's Got Talent or any program on TV. But in that, she owns up to her very human issues, her having cancer, her husband leaving her because he can't handle her having cancer, and her attempt to run away from her problems by moving to California only to learn that her issues made the trip with her. But a woman of deep faith, she came to some acceptance and wrote the song, It's Okay. And the song ends by singing over and over again what all of us flawed and mortal human beings need to hear over and over again. We need to hear it if genuine self-acceptance and self-esteem are our goals. She sings, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost and it's all right. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost, and it's all right. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. It's all right. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.